Sometimes we wonder about process. We know something about what we are to accomplish. We know the goal. We know the job description before us clearly is our responsibility. But we often ask, how? How do we do it? I would dare say that many of the seminars that are put on across our nation on how to do church often talk more about the process and the technique of doing things as opposed to what we should be doing. And sometimes that is a serious flaw. But I find in the study of the life of Jesus Christ a beautiful picture not only of how we should live in the sense of character, but how we should minister in the sense of reaching out to people. If you have your scriptures today, let me encourage you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. We want to finish uh, Mark 7, and we're going to begin in verse 31 that tells us that Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now, we have a map here to give us just a little bit of help. Uh, so we understand something of the geography of this particular story. Jesus had been ministering on the coastal area off the Sea of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, just north of Carmel. If you see the Sea of Galilee right in the center of the picture, you go due west. You have a mountain ridge that jets out into the Mediterranean Sea. That's the range of Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah fought the prophets of Baal. Follow the coast up just a little bit, and you will come to the port city of Tyre. And then just a little bit north of that, you have the land of Sidon. This is in modern-day Lebanon, and a gorgeous, gorgeous area, unfortunately racked with political problems and war-torn over the years and still today quite unstable. But Jesus went north, and then made his way south. Verse 31 says he went through Sidon and then down to the Sea of Galilee. Some Bible scholars believe that the journey of Christ in this portion of Scripture might have taken as long as eight months. So what we read in two verses in a matter of a few seconds, uh, we need to understand might have taken a, a far longer time. And Christ would have ministered and healed and preached during this time. And we don't have a record of all he did. John said if you would write down everything Jesus did, the books of the world couldn't contain all of that. And that's a bit of hyperbole, uh, but it shows that there's a lot he did that we don't know about. And here's perhaps one of those areas. But he went down to the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, that is his home region, right? His adopted home is Capernaum. And it is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But then he traveled further south and went to what is called here in verse 31, the region of the Decapolis. And you'll see that at the bottom of the picture. But the Decapolis literally means 10 cities. So you can go further north, just on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and you have Hippus. That's one of the towns of the Sea of Galilee. And Psychopolis is actually the city that is across the Jordan, west from the red dot that says Decapolis. And uh, Psychopolis is the New Testament name for the Old Testament city of Bethshan, which, by the way, is one of the places we go to on our trip and has some of the most amazing ruins 
of, a, of an old Roman city. But what you have in the Decapolis is Rome away from Rome. It is highly organized as Gentile territory. In fact, Jesus was in Gentile territory on the coast, and now he continues to minister in Gentile territory because the scribes and Pharisees are on his case. They're dogging his tracks and opposing him everywhere he goes. People in his own hometown of Nazareth are ashamed of him. But he's ministering now in, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that say that he is going to be a light to the Gentiles and the land of Zebulun is going to see a great light and that's the region, part of the region of the Galilee as well. So Jesus now comes down to the 10 cities. By the way, Mark, the gospel writer Mark, is writing his gospel to Rome. He's writing, his readers are Gentile readers who are Roman citizens. They would love to hear a little bit about Rome away from Rome. They'd like to hear a little bit about their outpost, the Decapolis. And so mentioning this particular area would have had great interest to his readers. And Mark's the only one that gives us this particular story about the life of Christ. Even though Mark's gospel is rather rapid and quick, moving from one event to another, he includes now something that no other writer includes. And we would certainly be uh, poorer were it not for this wonderful story about the life of Christ. Something else that I want you to be reminded of about this region of the Decapolis, it's already been mentioned in our study of the gospel, and that is we read in Mark chapter 5 and verse 20, so when the man went away, and the man that's being referred to in Mark 5 and verse 20 is the demon-possessed man. Remember, he said, my name is Legion, for there are many demons in me. And when the demons went out of the man, they entered into the herd of the pigs, and they went down that eastern slope into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. Well, this man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, Go back to your home, go back to your people, and tell them what Christ has done for you. And so Mark 5 says, the man went away and began to tell on the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and get this, the people were all what? Amazed. Keep that in your mind. So the ground had been broken up for the gospel. This territory was primed, it was well-informed, it was made ready for more ministry. And by the way, much of the ministry that you and I often do is on ground that has been plowed by someone else. Others have gone forward and they've done the hard work of introducing the gospel, overcoming opposition, toiling, praying, working, sometimes with no fruit, and then other people come in and there's a great ingathering of people for Christ. Well, remember, it's not just the one who does the harvest, it's the one who sows and the one who waters who also gets the reward. So this story, in part, we dedicate to Legion, who broke the ground and introduced many people to Christ. Well, we read in verse 32, there were some people who brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. 
So think about it just for a moment. Uh, This guy's miserable condition, this unfortunate man, has two maladies, deafness and the inability to talk. Dumb and mute is how we used to describe that, and thankfully we don't use those terms anymore because sometimes people thought the idea of dumb meant intellectual. In fact, the authorities say that not having the ability to hear is actually worse than not having the ability to see because a seeing person still is very much aware and can respond and hear. In fact, develop senses where it's almost like they can see even though they can't. But a person without their hearing is often unaware. And when you can't hear, you often can't speak. The scripture says this man could hardly talk which maybe means he had the ability and lost it through a disease or illness. Or maybe he tried to form words without the ability to hear, so they were garbled words. And if a person doesn't hear what's going on, and when they speak, it's hard to understand what they're saying, often society thinks that person's dumb. They don't have the intelligence to understand the the arguments and the debates. They're not like us, and there's a stigma that is connected with deafness. So this man was deaf, and he could hardly talk. Society seemed to be against him, thinking him to be less capable or intelligent. And also, he couldn't hear the Scriptures. You said, well, he could just read a copy. There were many copies in those days. The way you heard the scripture, the way you learned the Bible was to hear it read. There might have been one scripture for multiple churches, and sometimes they would divide up the scroll so that you could read the scripture in different places. I've heard of churches, um, especially during the times of persecution in Russia, where they would have one Bible and they would rip its pages apart and give its pages to different families, and the next Sunday you come, uh, you get another page. You, you exchange the page with someone else. And your week, when you have the page, you memorize it. Wow. How many copies of the Bible do you have at home? I'm not even going to say how many copies I have. So this man couldn't even hear the scriptures. I mean, he was so unfortunate. But... He had some friends who loved him. Isn't that great? We don't know if they were family or neighbors or just close friends, but the scripture says a man was brought by some people and they begged Jesus to heal him. They had enough concern for this unfortunate person that they brought him to Jesus. By the way, the person, no person is truly poor who has real friends like this. Friends, friends that care about your soul and friends that try to point you to Jesus. By the way, that's the best thing you can do for people is to point them to Jesus, to introduce them to Christ, to bring them to Christ. We, we know nothing about the man's understanding of Christ. Most likely he didn't know much. But he trusted his friends who probably were caring for him day and night. Now, the thing 
that this portion of Scripture, I think, does for us is to help us see how we should deal with the unfortunate, either those who are physically hurting or those who are spiritually destitute. I like what William Barclay says, there is no miracle which so beautifully shows or richly demonstrates the manner in which Jesus kindly deals with people. So Jesus now is the model. In the procedure that Jesus uses to heal this person, there is a pattern for us to follow when we deal with people, and maybe especially pagan people, that is, people who don't know God. The word pagan doesn't mean stupid. It means without God. Or it means following a false god. You and I have highly intelligent friends, maybe very good friends, maybe very good neighbors and family members who are pagan because they don't know about God or they don't care about him. So in this healing, there's a pattern for you and I to follow. I think we see a passionate request coming from these friends, and we see a compassionate response by the Lord Jesus. And I want to learn how to deal with people better. So this portion of Scripture is right for me. First of all, notice that Jesus was mindfully aware of this person's needs. There was a sensitivity to Jesus. You say, where do you get that? Well, verse 33, the man was brought to Jesus, and after he took him aside, away from the crowd. Now, it's true, the Bible doesn't say why Jesus did it, but we know that he always didn't do it this way. There must have been some reason. And I would suggest two. Number one, Jesus was concerned about misunderstanding. That is, someone might see what Jesus is about to do and think that this is the only way to heal someone, that there's some kind of hocus-pocus to it, that there are certain words and certain gestures you have to use, and that if you just do these things and reduce everything to just helping people physically and being more concerned about the miracle. No, no, Jesus didn't want misunderstanding. So he pulled the man aside privately. But I think perhaps more in tune with the heart of Christ, he was concerned for this individual, for the embarrassment, didn't want to put him out front of everyone else. He knew that this person was a special needs person and therefore needed a special approach. Jesus was mindfully aware that you don't approach everyone the same way. That you have to get into their heart and into their life and into their burden. I mean, imagine the embarrassment that this guy must have had because all society thought he was dumb. The shyness. How he would be withdrawn and hated to be in front of people and certainly didn't want to be made a spectacle of. He'd had enough gawking all throughout his life. Wherever he would go, people would point and stare. And so Jesus, mindfully aware of who he was dealing with, know your audience, he pulls him aside. If you want to help others, you've got to get into their skin. And that's what Jesus did. 
But then secondly, there is this loving touch. For verse 33 says, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears and then he spit, most likely on his fingers, and touched the man's tongue. What is he doing here? Have you ever heard of sign language? (laughs) This is sign language. Jesus can't tell the person, now this is what I'm going to do for you, unless the man was a little more attuned at reading lips, and most likely he was not. But So Jesus did some sign language by touching the ears, by putting his fingers in the ears and pulling them out. He was demonstrating what he's going to do to one stop the ears. And by touching his tongue with really his mouth, Although some people thought that spittle had some type of curative quality, I think the whole connection is the loving touch of the Savior touching the person who was hurting. He touched the two areas of his greatest physical need, right? Hearing and speaking. And when Jesus did that, he was identifying with this guy's problem. I mean, this is a parable of the incarnation. This is God becoming man. This is Jesus identifying with this man's weakness and need. And here is where you and I often stumble. We fail to see that people are individuals with great needs and they're hurting. Almost everyone is hurting. In some way, some shape, some fashion, everyone is hurting. I remember it was George Truett, the great Southern Baptist preacher who, I don't know if he invented the statement, but that's where I heard it from reading in one of his books. He said, be kind to everyone for everyone is having a rough time. How about be compassionate to everyone for everyone's hurting somewhere. And if you could spend some time with that someone, which is not a bad idea, and they learn to trust you Because your love is touching their heart, they might open up and tell you where they are hurting. So Jesus identified with this man. And by the way, this is not how he always healed. Remember the story we just read of the Syrophoenician woman who said to Jesus, heal my daughter? And Jesus healed from a distance. He wasn't even there. He didn't even say anything. He just said, go home, it's done. Don't you have to put your... your, fingers in her ears and spit on her face and do all those other things. No, it's he, she's healed. So why did he do it here? Sign language. And you and I don't do enough getting down on the level of those we're trying to reach. You know what we think? They ought to come to us. Come to church. Come to church. You know how intimidating that is for someone to come to church? Oh, you've grown up in church all your life. This is a comfortable place. You know how intimidating it is for someone to come who's never been here? Get down on their level. That's what Jesus did. Here we have a precious glimpse into the heart of the Savior. He was so touched by this man's need that he had to touch him. Now, some touches are spontaneous, aren't they? Some touches are instinctive. If you're a hugger and you meet someone, you're hugging them before they know it, and that could be a bit embarrassing. It's just instinctive to you. But some touches are intentional. 
And I'm told that the Greek word here for touch is not something superficial, but Jesus is lovingly laying hold of this person. The touch also is something of a priestly function. In the Old Testament, the priests would touch the individual when there was healing going on, and Jesus did the same thing. Remember the leper who was healed in Mark chapter 1? If you're willing, you can make me clean, he said to Jesus. Jesus said, I am willing, and he touched him. That was a priestly function. And when he touched him, the leper was healed. And Jesus does the same thing. The loving contact of the loving Savior with the person who needs to be set free. Oh, I love these stories of Jesus. But you know, touching people, that's a bit risky. We've got our disinfectant with us, don't we? Some of us carry it. Someone puts out their hand to shake their hand, and we want to, first of all, you know, squeeze our hands, get it clean, and then shake, or after we shake, you know, clean our hands. and, And I understand that. But Jesus touched him. Maybe a person who hadn't been touched in a long time, who hadn't felt the love and the hug, the warm embrace. That's Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Notice the scripture says, after he touched the man's tongue, verse 34, he looked up to heaven. Now he didn't have to do that either. So why did he do it? Why the heavenly look? I think the acknowledgement that all power comes from the Father, right? It's symbolic of prayer. Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, literally beyond the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. David the psalmist says in Psalm 5 and verse 3, my voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct my prayer to you and look up. Looking up is symbolic, indicative of prayer. It's the look of submission. It's the look of communication. It's a visual indication that without God's help, What we want to accomplish cannot be done. For Jesus, it was the look of total dependence and constant communion. He was always looking up. Before he ate, he broke the bread and looked up and gave thanks. You and I often bow our heads when we pray, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we are praying as we are prostrate on the ground, fallen before God, but... Many times we ought to pray and look up. One Bible teacher who is now retired but has written many commentaries, an individual I enjoy reading, Kent Hughes, said, I don't think the church's greatest sin is materialism. I don't think the church of the 21st century's greatest sin is sensuality although those are problems, I think the church's greatest sin is prayerlessness. 
If that's true, you and I and only we can do something about it. The church's greatest sin is our unwillingness to look heavenward. And if we want to give sight to the blind, and if we want to help the spiritually dead find life in Jesus Christ, we better be looking up because that's where our help comes from. And Jesus looks up to the Father. And then he does something that seems almost out of character. The Bible says, and with a deep sigh. Oh. What kind of sigh was it? Here again, I wish I could hear the sigh. Because sometimes my sighs are irritable sighs. Oh. And my family knows what it means. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Which is a lie added to the sigh. What kind of sigh was it? Well, I think it might have been a sigh of frustration. A sigh of frustration in the sense that Jesus was now seeing the miserable realities of life that are the awful consequence of sin. He had now come again, once again, face to face with the ravages of sin on the human race. This is not how it's supposed to be. Human beings were created good, and now look at this man and look at his suffering. I think the deep sigh had in it something of righteous anger, where God's heart was broken. And the evils of this world and the sin of this world are removed, are removed by the size of a sovereign Savior. By the way, this word sigh is used in other places connected with prayer, like Romans 8 and 26. We don't know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings. So you've got the gaze, heavenward, and the groan that are matched together. And indeed, they go together for the same fellowship that gives us strength softens our hearts. And if you're looking to God, you'll find strength from him. And if you're looking to God, he will break and soften your soul for the needs of people around you. I think Jesus was frustrated at the consequences of sin. But he was also extremely compassionate. One person put it this way, there is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than in heaven's throne room. And God is moved by our tears. And Jesus is moved. Remember when he went to the funeral for Lazarus? And we often say the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Frustrated because so many people at that funeral service didn't get it. Didn't get that there was any hope. Some of them were hired there just to cry and mourn. And as soon as 8 o'clock came, they were done on their shift and they would go home and wipe the tears and never be moved. Jesus was crying because of the folly of it, because of the ravages of sin but he's also crying because a dear friend of his was gone. No one can be moved like the sympathetic Jesus. 
the empathy of Jesus Christ to enter into your problems is unbelievable. And that is incarnational. He saw the devastation. He saw the delay of the mental and physical growth, the shyness, the embarrassment, the withdrawing. He saw all the problems and his heart was deeply moved. And I don't think there's enough sighing in our churches today to weep with those who weep. There was a man who was a priest by the name of Damien who years ago went to the island of Hawaii. You say, I'd like to be a missionary in Hawaii. <laughs> Not in a leper colony. He went to a colony where people were no longer treated as human beings, although intelligent, treated as dumb. And their physical illness, many people didn't understand Hansen's disease, and they were afraid of it and didn't want to get close to it. So they were colonized and ostracized and all alone, and no one would come to them except this man Damien did. And he began to live with them, and they were deeply moved by his life. Until one day he got up to speak to them, and he said, I'm no longer speaking at you, I am speaking with you because he had contacted leprosy. And he died in that colony, a leper. And while we may question some of the theological tenets of a person like that, who can question the heart and the wonderful picture of Jesus coming to a sin-cursed earth, sin -cursed earth and saying, I will take your sin upon myself. I'm not just talking to you. I'm with you. I'm one of you. And that's the only way our sin can be taken away is by a sovereign God coming and becoming sin for us, coming to this earth. The cost of doing ministry is weeping with those who weep and bearing one another's burdens, and that's how we fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful. But there's something else. We read in the scripture that after he did all of this, he said these words. It was a simple prayer. Ephrathah. It's a word that means be opened. And now we have added to the loving touch, the heavenly look, the sympathetic sigh, we have the authoritative word, the word of Jesus Christ, be opened. And it was. Talking about Lazarus a moment ago, one of my favorite quotes on the story of Lazarus is that one Bible scholar once said, if Jesus didn't say Lazarus, every tomb would have been opened and every dead person would have become alive. That's how powerful his word is. He had to say, Lazarus, sorry, the rest of you, you'll have to wait. Lazarus, come forth. Be opened. And the Bible says the man could immediately hear. His ears unstopped, his tongue loosened, because when Jesus speaks, creation listens. By the way, the man couldn't hear. But when Jesus speaks the powerful word, all creation hears. When Jesus says to the wind, be still, it is. When Jesus says to the blind man, be healed, he is. 
And did you know that the Bible that you and I read every day is the same authoritative word of God? Use it. First of all, take it into your own life and live upon its precepts. It is so practical, it is so powerful. And share it. You say, but my friend doesn't believe the Bible. Just share it. Get in any little biblical principle you can. Let, the word, let them hear the word of God and you will be surprised at how the word of God will pry its way into the locked soul and open it up. Because that's what the word of God does. It opens things that are shut, things that are closed. The word is the utterance of his will, of his heart, of his counsel, and behind all the word of God is divine omnipotence. Alexander McLaren said his will was loving and mighty all then. His will was loving and almighty back then. Is it any less loving and mighty today? No. So let's use it. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from England, used to say, a warrior does not defend his sword, he just uses it. And this is our sword. Oh, if someone that wants to honestly know and has a sincere question, yes, let's be glad to defend the authenticity and reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible, and our argument is strong. But many don't want to hear it, so just use it. Let the Bible do its work. And the conclusion, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened. He could hear and he could speak. So Jesus in verse, by the way, he's speaking plainly now. He was speaking in garbled fashion before, but now his words, oh, he, he was articulate. It was like he had taken voice and diction class. You could hear Every word enunciated, every syllable properly formed, every consonant at the end of a term, of a word, a sentence. When Jesus does something, he does it well. So in verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Wow, that never worked, did it? But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And the people were overwhelmed and amazed. What happened after the first man coming into the Decapolis, legion by name, who had been healed of the demons, preached about the goodness of Christ and what Jesus had done for him, the people were amazed. And now the same people are amazed and overwhelmed again, and they said this, he does everything well. Whatever he does is well. Isn't that a, an eloquent testimony on Christ? Jesus does everything well. He never messes up. By the way, I think this is a statement on creation. Because when Jesus, when, when as the agent of creation, and the Spirit was the agent of creation, when in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, at the end of every day of creation, he looked back and he said, this is, this is good. This is good. And when you get to chapter three, man sins. And this is not good. And creation has been spoiled ever since. There's still beauty in creation, but it is, isn't it amazing the beauty is in spite of the defilement? 
Just wait until God takes the defilement away. Wow, what a place. So Jesus in his mission is going around renewing the goodness of creation, restoring the world to beauty, bringing people back nearer to the place where they were originally in Adam and Eve. You see, the redemption of God is not just going to be the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of this world, of the universe. And Jesus has already started that. Bringing beauty, the beauty of God, back to a world that has been spoiled with the ugliness of sin. I tell you, we have lost our way in this world. And Jesus is here to restore it. This is a good way to reflect on all of your life, isn't it? Why don't you, at the end of every day, look back at the activities of the day and quote this verse, verse 37. Jesus has done everything well today. I've messed up several times, but he has done everything well. His loving providence, his faithful guidance, his sure word. Can you say that about your life? He does all things well. Now, some of us, Some of us are in great debate with God. We're not so sure he's doing a good job. The pagan unbelievers said he does everything well. May that be the testimony of every Christian. Now it's true, we see a lot of ugliness even in our lives, but remember this, God's the one who can take the ugliness and make it beautiful again. Bring beauty out of ashes. Restore the broken to health. And it wasn't just his physical health. It was all about his spiritual health. That's why Jesus came. And rarely is there a person healed physically that doesn't become spiritually redeemed in the work of Jesus Christ. Now we see in a glass or a mirror darkly, but when Jesus comes, we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know as we are fully known. And on the day of resurrection, we will stand back and for all eternity sing, worthy is the Lamb, for he has done all things well. And that's what I want to tell this fallen world. Follow Jesus, and your life will be filled with wonderful goodness because he does everything well. And this is how you help hurting people. Let's pray. Lord, give us your wisdom to see the situation around us. Be mindfully aware of the pain, the agony, the ravages of sin. And may we step into that situation with prayer and dependence upon you, with understanding of the feelings of that individual, with compassion, weeping with those who weep, and with the authoritative word of God that can bring healing to the soul. Lord, may we become ministers of righteousness, ministers of reconciliation, people who try to make beauty once again out of that which has become so ugly. May our church in this city of Lansing 
Be a place that so faithfully looks to God and is dependent upon him and so compassionate about the needs of people around us that the beauty of God will shine and people will be drawn to Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.